Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 22nd, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering appellate and constitutional law cases and questions, both here in California and nationally. In California, one sizable segment of the state appellate docket revisited at every Supreme Court oral argument session are death penalty appeals. Those appeals are automatic. Whenever a defendant receives a capital sentence, his or her case gets a guaranteed review by the state's highest justices, but those justices are seven in number, whereas over 700 inmates populate California's death row, and so, unsurprisingly, their appeals proceed very slowly, often taking two or three decades. The protracted nature of the death penalty process is one of several reasons cited by Governor Gavin Newsom in his executive order from last week that placed a moratorium on capital punishment in the state of California. Newsom also wrote in the order that the process is unfair and unjust because, if not in theory, at least in practice, it has disfavored communities of color, the poor, and those with mental disabilities. Newsom also cited the lack of any deterrent effect and occasional grave mistakes demonstrated by a handful of death row exonerations the state has seen. While the order sounds sweeping, its legal effect is circumscribed. Newsom may not oversee an execution as governor, but the sentences of death row inmates remain in effect and could be carried out by the next governor. Death penalty appeals and capital prosecutions will continue, though perhaps with some altered dynamics. Capital defendants might be more reluctant to plead to a life sentence, thinking the moratorium means there's really no worse punishment they could face at trial. Newsom's order recalls a time a generation ago when another branch of the state government foreclosed capital punishment. In 1972, California's Supreme Court held that practice violated the state's constitution. But it didn't for long. Voters swiftly and definitively passed a ballot measure amending the Constitution, so it explicitly sanctioned executions. Some death penalty opponents worry Newsom's unilateral act could invite a similar political response, particularly considering two recent voter initiatives in 2012 and 16 confirmed public support of capital punishment, though narrowly. Others see the order as confirmation the state is firmly trending away from government-administered executions, which in California have grown quite rare. Only 13 have taken place since that 1972 vote that reinstituted the penalty, and none has occurred since 2006. Further signs of that trend emerged from the legislature last week as Assembly Constitutional Amendment No. 12 was introduced, which would essentially strike from the Constitution those portions sanctioning execution that the 1972 voter-backed amendment added. Very pleased to be joined by three guests to offer their thoughts on all of these issues. We'll hear first from Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer, who was instrumental in passing the 2008 California Victims' Bill of Rights Act, also called Marcy's Law, and who opposes the governor's order. Then longtime death penalty opponent and veteran Santa Barbara criminal defense attorney Robert Sanger will visit to share a contrasting view. And finally, we'll hear from a co-author of that just-proposed constitutional amendment, Senator Bill Monning. Hope you'll enjoy all three of these conversations. But first, let me remind you of just a couple of things. As always, the Daily Journal and the Weekly Appellate Report are good sources for anyone in need. With a few California CLE credits, listeners of this show can receive one hour of such credit by finding a short true-false test on our site that corresponds with this episode. There should be a link to it. Complete that and tender the corresponding very competitive fee, and you will have just enjoyed, hopefully, an edifying podcast and also helped keep the state bar off your back. Also, don't forget to look for the weekly appellate report on the go. Find us in the podcast app and other streaming avenues. If you do find us there, please leave a rating or review, as those do a lot to help us improve the show. Okay, without any further preamble, I'm happy to welcome in Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer. Mr. Spitzer is a longtime prosecutor and victims' rights advocate. He assumed office earlier this year. Mr. District Attorney, thanks for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Okay, um, maybe just off the top, could you describe to me your initial reactions in hearing about the executive order last week, and to an extent, did it take you by surprise? I'm very, very frustrated by it. I, I find it actually reprehensible. The governor, when he campaigned, he was very, very clear to the voters before he was elected that he would enforce the law as a governor. He said he would enforce the death penalty, even though he objected to it. Uh, former Governor Jerry Brown even as attorney general and governor objected to the death penalty, but in both those capacities, he enforced the law. I mean, you know, we're lawyers. We, uh, I don't think Gavin Newsom is, but Jerry Brown and I are lawyers, and we work in the rule of law. And there's ways to deal with rules that you don't like, and that's to go back, in this case, to the voters and undo Proposition 66 or the other propositions that reinstated the death penalty 
in California uh, after the Supreme Court had suspended it. So, I, I mean, that's just the system we work in. And if you decide on your own to unilaterally uh, change the powers that are given to you just because you want to, uh, then we create chaos and we really harm people's expectations about what they could expect from the criminal justice system. So Orange County has about 57 inmates on death row. Uh, and of course, by this governor's power, by you know one broad stroke of his pen, uh, he tried to basically suspend uh, right uh, you know over 700 inmates, 740 already convicted and sentenced death row inmates. You referenced, you know, the, the rule of law and, and, and following uh, the boundaries of legal authority. I mean, is it not true that the governor is endowed with the, the authority to grant reprieves for, uh, for inmates? So, you know, is it incorrect to say that if not, you know, well within, he's acting with this executive order, you know, at least within his legal authority? Well, obviously, there's going to be a debate about what his legal authority is. Clearly, he has the ability to commute a particular sentence. But he declined to issue, you know, Governor Brown had in declined to issue a blanket pardon of death row because he knew something that, you know, other governors didn't. Go California's governor does not have commutation and pardon powers, but they're limited. They do have that, but they're limited. And, of course, under the California Constitution, Article 5, Section 8, a governor may only grant a pardon or a commutation to a person twice convicted of a felony with the California Supreme Court's approval. And we saw that Governor Brown had some of his commutations rejected by the Supreme Court just shortly before he left office. That's probably the reason Governor Newsom chose the executive order, because most of the inmates on death row have been convicted of more than one felony. And so changing their sentences would require agreement from the California Supreme Court. So while it's true that a governor has some discretionary power in this regard, I don't think these powers apply here. You know, I'd be curious to ask what you think makes a big difference between the status of California's death penalty, say, two weeks ago and now after the executive order. It has been since 2006, since there actually has been an execution. So many would say there's a de facto moratorium already. I guess how big of a deal do you think it is now that there is, you know, a, in fact, de jure uh, moratorium? Well, it's actually interesting. Um, you're interviewing somebody who actually was the witness in the last execution in 2006. I was at the death chamber uh, in 2006, and I witnessed the last person put to death here in California at San Quentin Prison. I wanted to see that for myself. It was an important thing for me to have experience because, you know, I always wanted to become district attorney, and I knew that I would have that decision-making power about whether or not to pursue the death penalty or not in certain limited cases. And so I wanted to see for myself whether I thought it was cruel and unusual. I think it's going to dramatically change how prosecutors look at cases. If you remember the James Gardner case, he was a convicted sex offender that abducted or he took, uh, assaulted and uh, sexually assaulted and then murdered Amber Dubois and Chelsea King in San Diego. And Bonnie Dumanis, then the district attorney of San Diego, Oh, even though the parents wanted the death penalty, especially the Kings, she went back to the families and decided not to pursue the death penalty because she believed it was de facto, you know, there was a moratorium essentially in California, and that there could be a life without possibility of parole plea. But see, we could get those pleas for life without the possibility of parole because we had the death penalty as a possible sanction, and in order to avoid death, these criminals who knew they were guilty would plead guilty to life without the possibility of parole. And then you'd have a discussion as a prosecutor with the family of whether or not that was the appropriate thing to save them, both the pains of trial as well as, you know, decades of appeals. And so now we're going to lose that leverage because inmates are going to want to, they have nothing to lose by going to trial because maybe they can have a mistrial or create some reasonable doubt or whatever. But now prosecutors have lost their ability to negotiate for life without possibility of parole because they don't have the death penalty hanging over a guilty person's head who wants to plead guilty. Secondly, uh, I think victims, this takes the wind out of victim sales. As a prosecutor, one of the things that keeps me energized and keeps me going is getting justice for the victim and having the victim in the courtroom there, you know, really as your champion 
sitting in that court really wanting and encouraging you as a prosecutor to go forward. And now I just think that now all victims are going to say, why would we even bother going forward with this, go through years of appeals, uh, still go through the process, when at the end of the day we may not be able to pursue the death penalty. Now, it's kind of a math problem because the governor can only be the governor uh, for two terms, so, you know, because of term limits. So, you know, these cases take years to appeal. So even if, let's say tomorrow, I, as District Attorney of Orange County, move forward, received a conviction, and the, the jury sentenced the particular defendant to death, that case is going to take way longer than Gavin Newsom's term as governor. So it might be mathematically moot anyway, but I really think it changes the dynamic in terms of both prosecutors as well as just jury the jury pool believing that the death penalty doesn't exist and so they're they're going to be less likely to want to engage in in a trial or sit in a trial or go to that length to deliberate i mean being a jury in a death penalty case is a very very stressful and overwhelming experience to vote to convict somebody to death death so i think that's going to have significant impact you referenced the sort of the, the timetable that it typically takes from a uh, death penalty verdict to then reach a, an execution. That's one thing that was mentioned in the executive order. I'd just like to respond to a couple of the, the adjectives that the governor used to describe the death penalty in, in the executive order. He called it unfair, unjust, wasteful, protracted. He, says, he also says it does not make the state safer, doesn't have a the deterrent effect intended. I, I expect that you take issue with those descriptions. Well, first of all, what does he know about any of that? He's never been in law enforcement. He's never been a prosecutor. I don't think he's been a criminal defense attorney. I mean, he's never been part of the system. Uh, Jerry Brown never, you know, he might have held those personal convictions, but he knew he was responsible for carrying it out. And he had the ability on a case-by-case basis to make decisions individually, not a blanket order, but he could... Uh, you know, look at a case-by-case basis and make some decisions about a particular conviction or or death or whatever. But Gavin Newsom decided not to do it that way. I just find it so uh, absurd, quite frankly. After a complete adjudication, years of appeal, some of the best minds uh, both on both sides, right? Judges reviewing these cases, criminal appellate attorneys working on every single argument, new evidence, maybe on a habeas, uh, any way to try to save uh, the convicted or the condemned uh, defendant, essentially, with the condemned order of death, save them from that ultimate punishment. And uh, at the end of the day, when somebody has exhausted every single aspect, there's finality. I mean, one of the things that the system needs, our criminal justice system, our, our litigation system, I mean, whether you're a civil attorney or a criminal attorney, The system relies on finality. People want finality. We have a court system and a judicial branch to litigate and deal with disputes and help us resolve disputes in a a civilized way, not on the streets with street justice, but through the court of law. And so this is the best system in the world. And once somebody reaches the end of their appeals and uh, a, a conviction is sustained on appeal, then that punishment is the appropriate punishment. So yeah, I take great, great issue. I feel so horrible for all the victims in California um, who have gone through the system, waited patiently, uh, had an expectation, urged their prosecutor to seek death in some cases. Uh, sometimes, look, it, we, um, we had a, a little girl kidnapped and murdered here in Orange County and her mother was objected to the death penalty, and the district attorney, my predecessor, pursued it anyway because he believed it was a death case. And so sometimes we are even at odds with the victim, but at the end of the day, there's a system that we rely on, and the governor has turned that entire criminal justice system on its head, and he's actually jeopardized the entire system of the court system, in my opinion, because basically he's making a blanket statement that irrespective of what the law is or how we make finality in our court decisions, he can make a decision because he has a personal 
dispute with a particular approach, in this case, the death penalty. And I, I, find, that, I, I find that dangerous. I think it's a very, very dangerous slippery slope, and it, it could be precedent-setting, and I, I, I think it's absolutely wrong. I'm a former member of the legislature. I served in the state assembly for six years, and I, I just believe in the system. And whether I agree or disagree, it's the best system we have, and he just violated that system. And just one more about you know the the system and its effectiveness. How, what is your response to the sorts of criticisms that come from folks that say studies show that the result of your prosecution and potential uh, death sentence depends more perhaps on your race or economic status than uh, your guilt? Or some folks you know will point to exonerations from California's death row, of which there have been a few over the past couple of decades. You know, do ideas like that undercut your thought that the death penalty is uh, a viable form of punishment? Well, obviously, every district attorney in the 58 counties in California gets to decide whether or not a particular case uh, they can request a jury. You know, they can file a death penalty case and they can ask the jury to return a verdict of death. And so is there potential inconsistency across the state because it's done by individual district attorneys? Of course. And is there a community sensibility? Like I gave the example of Bonnie Dumanis in San Diego when she was a district attorney. She believed that that was appropriate for her county. As district attorney here, it's my absolute duty to look at uh, every case. I re- there's a committee that I have to review any case, uh, whether before I would even consider death, to, and a defense attorney is on that, and they can come in and make their pitch about why that particular case their client uh, should not be eligible or should we, I should not pursue the death penalty. Do I think there's disparate treatment? I think there's, there's an argument for centuries that there's disparate, disparate treatment in the law. We just saw disparate treatment in how we have admissions into colleges and how people game the system. So is it uh, unfathomable that those who have access to you know very expensive uh, and talented criminal defense attorneys could get a better defense or lodge a better defense than somebody who is indigent. Yeah, I mean that's that that's that's part of our system. But again, the backstop, the safeguard, is years and years of review by appellate courts, which are multi-jurisdictional, and then of course the Supreme Court, which has final jurisdiction over all death penalty cases, which you know for the entire state of California. So, how in the world does that argument carry weight when? You know, magistrate after magistrate, uh, criminal defense attorney, appellate attorneys, all these people make the arguments, consider the arguments, weigh and balance those arguments. At the end of the day, if they uphold the death penalty, then we, we deserve to have that finality in our system. Um, just a couple more. You, of course, represent the people of Orange County as the head prosecutor. You've also spent a lot of your career advocating and working with victims' rights groups. I'd just be curious, you know, how the two perspectives overlap if at any point they come into conflict if you're thinking about the punishment that should be meted out in terms of what the people in general want or on the other hand what say a victim or a victim's family might want you're correct i was the statewide campaign manager and i co-wrote marcy's law which uh, added 10 very strict rights into the california constitution in 2008 I was a prosecutor. I've been a police officer. I was a a reserve police officer with the Los Angeles Police Department for 10 years. And I've always been on that side, if you will. I've I've never done criminal defense. However, my duty as a prosecutor is neither to the victim or to any particular individual. I represent this, this kind of amorphous, nebulous thought that of the people of the state of California who happen to reside within the borders of Orange County. And I'm very, very clear what my responsibility and my mandate is, almost in contravention or contradiction, I suppose, with the governor, who, who, you know, I mean, I I suppose as a district attorney, if I was against a death penalty, I could always decide not to pursue death in every single one of my cases. And there are district attorneys in the state who are against the death penalty, and so they don't pursue the death penalty even within their own county because of their own objection to it. So that's that's why the voters are so important, because my job is to reflect the community standard of the people that put me into office. And I think I do that. And my county is even pretty, pretty evenly distributed now, Democrat, Republican, Independent. And I think everybody uh, re- re- believes and expects 
that um, I'm not just some you know knee-jerk reaction in terms of you know always wanting to ask for the death penalty. I think it's a great, great burden as a DA to have that uh, power, and it should be taken incredibly with great responsibility. So, no, I don't serve any particular victim. I don't serve uh, any particular constituency. I, I'm very, very clear about what my responsibility is, and it's a very, it's both a legal one, but it's a, it's an incredibly moral responsibility. Do you think there will come a legal challenge to this executive order from perhaps the district attorneys or any other quarter? Um, do you have any thoughts on that, any potential legal challenge and what what it might look like? Yeah, I think there's obviously some great discussion going on now with various groups that um, have supported the death penalty, especially the group that was behind Prop 66, which you know added penal the Section 3604 to the Penal Code and other provisions. I mean, there was a group of people who came together and, and asked the state of California, one, do you want to reaffirm your support of the death penalty? That was two years ago. And number two, they actually posed the question to the voters, do you want to speed up the death penalty? Because of the fact that it was incredibly frustrating, you know, decades of delay. And the voters did pass that initiative again. So, And that's why you see the governor uh, being asked during the campaign are you going to support the law? Are you going to, as governor, are you going to uphold the law? And when he was campaigning, of course, he said he would uphold the law. And and now, you know, as governor, once elected, uh, he's breaking his promise to the voters. So, I do think, I know that courts are loath to overturn discretionary decisions by both legislative and executive officers of, uh, you know, elected officials. There, they don't. They will not and generally do not second-guess elected officials' decisions. But if, if the governor in this case overstepped his bounds by doing a blanket order as opposed to an individual case-by-case order, I think there's a very good chance. Now, let's say that case is taken, that case is put forward and the plaintiffs uh, win and the governor is ordered to uh, reverse his executive order. Okay, then what's he going to do? Every single time, there's a way to game it. Every single time somebody comes up and they have exhausted their appeals, he'll just commute that sentence on a case-by-case basis the entire time he's in office. At least that is the more honest, intellectually honest, the, 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 actually the way it should be done. And then we can, what's, what would be better for that in terms of a public discussion and a, and a debate about the death penalty is then we would, we would, it would actually be personalized. See, right now, you know, these are the most, these are the worst of the worst murderers. These are your sexual predators who murder. These are your stalkers. These are your killing, killers of police officers um, and public safety personnel. These are the worst of the worst murderers. And now, at least, when if you were to commute a particular individual sentence on a case-by-case basis, we could discuss and debate that. And we, it, the public, it would either shock the public's conscience or it wouldn't. But it would focus it on that particular set of facts for that particular person. And then you would really understand the gravity of the offender. But what he did by making it blanket, he took the sting out of it. It's not, it, there's no specific facts. We're not talking about any particular case. And so the public doesn't really understand, nor is it absorbing the magnitude of the evil of of these individuals and the crimes they've committed. Okay, just one one last one. Do you think that uh, we've seen the last government-administered execution in in California? Do you think you you, you witnessed it? Well, you know, that would be fascinating if, uh, as a district attorney of Orange County, when I was still a member of the legislature in 2006, if I happen to have said, you know, I, I need I, I need to see this for personal reasons, and I did, and it ends up being the last execution in California. I mean, then you know I'd be part of history. I I that's what I what I'd rather see is the governor uphold these executions and that we start executing uh, those who have been long overdue and have exhausted every single one of their legal rights to be executed. So. But obviously, that's not going to happen with this governor. But I do think um, it's important. And now, the, you know, there's a bill in the legislature. There might be even two bills, but there's at least a bill I think that's already been introduced for an initiative to go back to the voters. And 
you know what? That's the right, appropriate way to debate this issue is to is to put it back in the court of public opinion it, by initiative and see if the if the will of people is there. But what I'd like to get is Governor Newsom on the record that if this goes back to the people and now as governor he campaigns and does everything he can to be persuasive and convince the public that they should change their mind and let's say he loses and the gov- and the people say no we still want the death penalty that he will reverse himself and he will actually uphold the law that would be the appropriate way that's what you want your kids to learn when they have their civics class that's how you want people to understand how the law works and the governor could lead that discussion and actually, you know, make this a great civics lesson for the entire state of California. Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer. Mr. District Attorney, thanks for being on our show. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Robert Sanger is a senior partner at Sanger, Swieson and Dunkel in Santa Barbara. He's a veteran criminal defense attorney, and he has defended clients in capital cases. He's been a longtime activist against the death penalty, writing widely and serving formally as the president of California Attorneys for Criminal Justice and as director of the Death Penalty Focus, to name just a few titles and affiliations. Mr. Singer, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so as I mentioned, you have been a really a veteran on the criminal defense side. You have represented capital defendants at trial and have represented uh, death row inmates in direct and habeas appeals. Also been overall a, uh, a longtime opponent of the death penalty overall and in California. To start, maybe tell me your initial reactions as uh, after the order came down last week. Well, it was a breath of fresh air in one sense. It it reminded me a bit of the the time that we had in California when the Anderson case came down in 1972 and shortly followed by the Furman decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, we all sort of exhaled and said, boy, we've, you know, fought long and hard for that. Back then I was a student, but, you know, we fought long and hard and all of a sudden here's people are hearing what we're saying. And yet we know that the experience back then was that the death penalty proceeded to, to move ahead, even though, of course, the people who were on death row got a got an actual commutation. In this case, we don't even really have that. We have a delay uh, in the death penalty, and the people on death row, 737 of them, are not going to be executed during this governor's watch. It's certainly a good thing. It was courageous on the part of Governor Newsom. He's spoken very clearly about it. So all of that is very, very good. I'm just concerned that, you know, this hasn't slowed anything down, and we're picking a jury in May. Uh, on a death penalty case in Los Angeles where they're not giving up. That, uh, that case that you referenced, the People versus Anderson case, was, I believe, and not to date you, from 1972, correct? But it was also then followed up pretty quickly by a, a referendum that then reaffirmed that the state could execute death row defendants, right? Yes, and that also was true around the country. So almost immediately after we got through exhaling in 1972, the various states, uh, death states, uh, reinstituted the death penalty. California attempted to do it and actually uh, passed a law in 1977 that was upheld. And then 1978, the Briggs Initiative was passed by the people. It was an initiative. And that is the death penalty law that, they, that we operate under today in California. Then, So obviously you have advocated and, and written pretty widely against the, the use of the death penalty, um, and specifically in, in the state, I'd like to ask you, as to California's administration of the death penalty, what kind of um, are, you, are your principal qualms with it? Well, I, I have to say, I have briefed this, I've written about it and everything else, so I could, I could demonstrate that both myself and many other people have said the same things, but Governor Newsom really reflected exactly what we were concerned about. You know, number one, it's just an anachronism. It's just not morally correct for people to kill other people when it's not in self-defense or in the heat of battle. I mean, you've taken people, you've neutralized them, they're helpless, and after a number of years, you drag them to a chamber and kill them. That's just wrong. But not only is it wrong, it also has been applied uh, in a very unfair fashion. Uh, we still have a disproportionate number of people of color on death row in California. We have a disproportionate number of people 
who are mentally impaired one way or another. We have everybody on death row is poor, uh, except for one inmate, uh, according to the Department of Corrections. So there's one person who has a uh, private lawyer on, on death row. Everybody else has either appointed counsel or, or they're waiting for counsel to be appointed. So, And, and uh, the other thing, quite frankly, is over the years, people on death row often were people who had lawyers who were not fully up to the task. Uh, so it's a very arbitrary way to determine who should die. Uh, it's resulted in having people who were actually innocent on death row. Fortunately, in California, in recent history, we have not executed somebody who's actually innocent, as far as I know, 13 people. But uh, around the country, uh, people have been executed who were actually innocent. Uh, famously, uh, in, in Texas, Willingham was executed. who was clearly not guilty. And there are several others. In California, we've had people on death row who were exonerated. You know, it's a kind of a, it's, it's, if you stop and think about it, basically, we're delegating to human beings the decision as to whether or not to kill somebody. And there's, they really haven't devised a good way to do it so that you can filter out all the prejudice, all the bias, and all the mistakes. And so it's wrong and it should just be ended. And I think pretty much that's what uh, Governor Newsom said. And, you know, notwithstanding all of that, and I would doubt that voters in the past two elections that have affirmed the state's use of the death penalty maybe have that full amount of information that you have described. But it is true that they have in close proposition elections by, I believe, four points in 2012 and six points in 2016 uh, approved of the state continuing to use capital punishment. I mean, what do you make of overall the, the folks in the state seem to think it's not wrong to use the death penalty? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that that really reflects the conclusion. I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, we had the ballot initiatives on and they didn't pass. But, you know, when people actually sit as jurors in jury trials and, and uh, they're ultimately asked to determine whether or not to impose death, overwhelmingly they don't impose death. People will sit around their living rooms or go to the voting booth and say, we should have the death penalty, and we need the death penalty. It's the right thing to do. But when it comes down to it, and they're really faced with the individual obligation to decide whether or not somebody lives or dies, they look at it, they realize they're dealing with a human being, and more often than not, they don't impose death at that level. So that's one indication that, you know, you're, it's, it's abstract when you're going into the voting booth. The second thing I'd say we came very close uh, in, in 2012, and then 2016, the other, quote, side put on the ballot Prop 66 to, quote, speed up the death penalty. We now know, because it, that was passed in lieu of our proposition to end the death penalty, we now know that after it's passed, uh, and some of us predicted it before it was passed, it's an absolute disaster, and it's creating more problems. The California Judicial Council, which is headed by the Chief Justice of California, is struggling to come up with rules uh, to implement the uh, Prop 66, as they're required to do, uh, by the proposition itself. I mean, they sat down and said, well, how do we do this? How can anybody finish a uh, habeas petition in one year when they won't even have transcripts and, you know, they're... I mean, it's just very, it was very unrealistic. And then, of course, the, the Prop 66 built into itself a series of appeals, including an extra level of appeal that never existed before, based on who knows what, because it was sort of uh, put together somewhat haphazardly by the proponents. But the, the result of that whole thing is that Prop 66 is going to delay things even more and make them more complicated, as far as we can help. So voters didn't know that either when they voted. They had a choice to speed up the death penalty. And the, I think their phrase was, mend it, don't end it, and they ended up making it uh, even more complicated procedurally. So I think if the voters had known what they were really voting on, they they would have voted to end the death penalty. And, and if I could, one of the things I think is really important about Governor Newsom's order, even though it doesn't actually end the death penalty in California, but his order brought to the fore 
this discussion so that people can really consider it and think about it. And I haven't seen polling, and I don't really put a lot of stock in polling. A lot of people don't these days. But, uh, so, you know, the fact of the matter is that I suspect that that kind of dialogue that he's started to generate is going to have a, a real effect on people understanding what the death penalty is all about and, and what some of the big problems are with it. And, you know, perhaps if we have an initiative on the ballot uh, next time, uh, the voters will, will end the death penalty, and I'll take care of that. You know, some people say maybe Gavin Newsom should not be the one to start that discussion. You know, our previous guest, District Attorney Todd Spitzer, referenced that you know, Newsom is not an attorney, doesn't have a legal background. The legislature has not passed any law referencing the death penalties impropriety. The courts haven't found it unconstitutional. Maybe Governor Newsom you know, should sort of have waited for these other more democratic bodies to, to make that decision before he says, you know, hey, this uh, process is, just doesn't work. What, what, what is your response to something like that? Well, I think important change often takes courage and it takes somebody to stand up and tell the truth and say, look, this is the way it is, whether it's politically appropriate or not. Obviously, that cuts both ways. We could have a long discussion about that in the context of presidential politics at the moment, but the fact is, in this particular case, it, it, there's, there's some real sense to be made of this. Because as Governor Newsom said, you know, I am now the governor. I cannot abide by signing that death warrant and saying, you know, I now authorize you to kill this human being. It came down to that very personal issue. I think it's very principled. His position is very principled on broad principles, as we just discussed. But when you look at the, that last act, he's the man who has to say, kill this, this person. And that's why they have a hotline from the governor's office to San Quentin, or they did. I mean, it's been dismantled maybe now, but, you know, that was the whole idea traditionally to, in every death state. Uh, they have that hotline from the governor's office. Uh, by analogy, you know, Governor Ryan, back in 2000, came to the same conclusion. He was a Republican. He was a pharmacist. He wasn't a lawyer. He had signed death warrants in two cases, reluctantly, but, you know, he realized it was his duty. He believed it was his, his duty at the time. And then it was brought to his attention, due to some work by some Northwestern journalism students, of all people, it was brought to his attention that there was a couple, there were a couple of people on death row who were absolutely innocent. And they actually tape recorded one fellow confessing, saying he was waiting, a person who was not on death row confessing to one of the crimes uh, of a person who had been wrongfully convicted. And uh, saying, I'll never forget that, saying, I wondered when somebody was going to come and ask me. Uh, he was being interviewed in a coffee shop. And that caused Governor Ryan to look at it and say, oh, wait a second, if there are two people on, on death row who uh, are innocent, uh, I, can't, I can't sign another death warrant until we find out what's going on. So he appointed his commission, and, and they eventually, after the commission and other work was done, there were 17 people out of 171, so it's 10% about uh, of the population of death row in in Illinois that was exonerated. So I think it's a very real issue for a governor. Uh, it's a very real issue for Governor Newsom, and he referred to that. Uh, most of what he said was justifying what he did on principal grounds, which I think is also extremely important for a governor to do that. Um, we haven't referenced him yet, but you know, the governor that preceded Gavin Newsom uh, Jerry Brown. If we take him as a, an example, it sort of shows that perhaps you, know, you, you don't necessarily need to issue an order of this nature to avoid executing inmates in California. There has not been an execution since 2006. So under the last governor, there was sort of a de facto moratorium. Do you think the main reason to put out something like this now is to, in maybe the governor's eyes, create some momentum towards uh, prompting the other uh, branches of government, why not just sort of continue the status quo where you have it on the books as the folks have voted for, but it, you know, it's not really going into effect if it was the, the one that has to sign the, the death warrant don't want to do it? Well, I'm not sure that that ultimately is the way it would play out because 
Jerry Brown had put off the death penalty, uh, in part by his administration's actions, in part due to litigation over the lethal injection, lethal injection protocol. So uh, that was, as you may recall, was the big thing that was holding up executions at the end was the lethal injection protocol. The federal court had said, you don't have an appropriate one. And I think it's a, it's a terrible thing if you read about those cases where people were executed and it didn't go well. I mean, it was a horrible thing. So there's a good reason to for the courts to intercede and say, wait a second, uh, you don't even do this with veterinary practice to put an, uh, an animal down other than a human. Uh, you shouldn't use this on a human. Uh, but meanwhile, the administration under Governor Brown probably, it's fair to say, took their time in coming up with another protocol. And each time they proposed something, there was a 180-day period to uh, have the public comment on it, and then they had to respond to the comments. And so this took a long time, and basically, by the end of his governorship, there still was not a protocol in place. Now, Prop 66, the one thing that they did do that might have speeded things up in a sort of cruel fashion uh, was to say that the protocol can be devised by the Department of Corrections. It does not have to be uh, reviewed by the public. It will not be uh, reviewable under the Administrative Procedures Act, uh, which is what everything else is subject to. And nobody can be criticized, uh, punished, uh, pharmacists and doctors could participate and use drugs that were not approved, and they still wouldn't be subject to discipline. All of that was in Prop 66, along with all these other things that make that are going to make the rest of the system much more uh, cumbersome. That would have, if that was allowed to proceed, that would have expedited the execution of about 25 people. So uh, right now, if Governor Newsom had not done that, uh, the protocols would have been approved de facto because there's no review process for it. And you got about 25 people who have exhausted all of their other reviews uh, through the state and the federal court. And, you know, it's not to say that there wouldn't be fights over you know, last minute things. Uh, certainly Kevin Cooper got a, a reprieve for some additional uh, testing and that sort of thing. But uh, there's a good chance that you would have had at least 20 people who would have been lined up and the governor would not be able to do anything unless he granted a, a pardon, a commutation, or a reprieve. And to grant commutations or pardons, as you know, the uh, Supreme Court has the right or the obligation or the power to review those decisions. And they turned down Brown, Governor Brown, on several of them last year at the end of the year when he uh, commuted sentences, uh, death sentences. The Supreme Court said no, they've been twice convicted felons under the words of the, of the Constitution, so they get to review it and they didn't approve it. So Newsom would have been uh, in the position of saying, well, now I'm governor and we're going to have 20, say 25 people lined up here and maybe I can commute or, or pardon some of them based on an individual determination, but ultimately he was going to be obligated to uh, to proceed with the with the executions unless he used the power to reprieve, uh, which is instead of a permanent act of reducing a sentence, it's a temporary delay. It's a reprieve unless and until somebody else does something different. Yeah, I mean, we've referenced uh, Prop 66 uh, a couple of times now that I believe aimed to bring the, the time period between a death penalty sentence and an execution to around five years. Yeah, as it stands now, it usually takes two to three decades for that um, time pr to that process to, to play out. I guess, you know, what are the, I know there are a lot of different reasons as to why it takes so long, but what are the, I guess, the, the main reasons why it does burn the California court system for such a dang long time and leave folks on death row for what must you know, seem like a pretty interminable period of time, 20 or 30 years before an execution is reached? What are the main reasons? All right. Well, first of all, just to, uh, to come in Prop 66, uh, it said five years for the California part of the process. So from the time of a death sentence 
to the end of the California review was supposed to be five years. And under the case of Briggs versus Brown, uh, the California Supreme Court found that to be unconstitutional. However, Mr. Scheidegger, who is the proponent of Prop 66, or was, and is still an advocate uh, for anything to promote the death penalty, he actually appeared in the in the Supreme Court. I was there as amicus for uh, the other side, so I was sitting right there. But he appeared, and he, the justices asked him, well, wait a second, when are you talking about this five years? How can you tell a court that they have five years to do these things, especially when you have all these extra steps that the Supreme Court wouldn't have control over. And he agreed that it was aspirational only. And uh, in one of the in one of the dissents, I believe it was Justice, uh, it was either Louis or uh, uh, Liu, I'm sorry, it was either Liu or Cuellar, uh pointed out that that was uh, uh, sort of a bait and switch tactic or false advertising because uh, it, that was a big point. We're going to do everything in five years, and he had to admit, the proponent had to admit that that couldn't really be imposed on the court. So it could be aspirational or directory, but not mandatory. Anyway, so that's the five years. So that five-year period is, go- is going to be longer than five years. But the delays in execution are not just California. California takes a while to point counsel because we just have so many people who have been put on death row and to have competent counsel. There aren't that many people that study this and work on it and are prepared to take on a giant responsibility. And so it takes a while to find counsel for, particularly for the habeas part of the case. Uh, and traditionally that's what's happened. So there are some de- delays there. The court generally gets around to the cases and fairly, uh, the Supreme Court, in a fairly a reasonable fashion. There's some cases that linger, and others that don't, but that's the case. A lot of times they get sent back for further hearings because the Supreme Court says, yes, there was a serious problem. Go back and maybe not have a whole new trial, but have a hearing on, factual hearing on whether or not there was ineffective assistance or there was an Atkins claim or something like that. But after California gets through with it, after the, the final decision of not only the direct appeal, but the habeas, uh, then uh, a habeas can be filed in the federal court, and that's true throughout the country. Uh, and that's where all the cases go. They go to the federal district court for the district in which the conviction occurred, and then they go to the circuit court, the federal circuit court, uh, for the circuit in which the district exists. And we're the Ninth Circuit, of course, but uh, you know all the other circuits uh, have the same circuits where there's the death penalty have the same issues. They review them. They sometimes send them back. Cases go back and forth all the time where the federal court says, I see a problem. We need to, you need to fix it. Sometimes they're reversed entirely for retrial as one of mine is. But ultimately, many of them will go to the Supreme Court on a petition for certiorari. And that whole process just takes years. And that's, that's the way it is. Now, one of the things that the uh, proponents of the death penalty say is, well, there's only been a few people that you can prove were who were actually innocent and who were executed. I would say one would be too many, but you know, you you hear the argument from the other side. Well, there's only been a few. There's Willingham in Texas and a few other people, another fellow in Texas, and some others who were actually executed who were who were uh, absolutely innocent. But uh, they're you know they'll say, well, the other ones, you know, we're not sure that they that they were that they were actually innocent uh, or not. But, you know, and they will point out, you have all these reviews and you have this process to weed out the the cases. So, so look, you see, we don't really execute that many innocent people. Well, now, if you want to cut it all back down so that there's no time or procedures available to do these things, to really do a thorough review, you're clearly you're going to have more people executed who are innocent. So, uh, it, it just can't have it both ways. It does take time, and uh, you know justice is expensive, and, and we want to have a good justice system uh, in any uh, decent country. Particularly, I would think in ours, we want to have a good justice system we can all rely upon. And if you're going to kill somebody, yeah, it takes time to review that. 
you know, do you think that's sort of the most persuasive or the most dispositive factor in that sort of in any um, administration of justice, the government's not going to be 100% accurate? And so if you're administering a, a system of executing folks, you're going to get it wrong from time to time. Our previous guest, District Attorney Spitzer, you know, will say the prosecutors try really hard to make sure they whittle down defendants to just pick out the you know, absolute worst of the worst, folks who have done or at least are convicted of doing some really heinous stuff to be sent to death row. And in many instances, you know, they have taken victims from their families for life, often maybe young victims. I guess what is sort of the, the best or the, the first response that comes to mind to, to that line of argument that the state really expends energy in finding just the worst of the worst to get this penalty. And often you have people that want them to get it. Victims' rights groups uh, will, I imagine, say that uh, f- plenty of these folks deserve this punishment. Well, the first thing I would say to that is the death penalty is wrong, and I don't say that cavalierly. I say if you look at it, stand back historically. Any of us, if we lost a loved one to violence at the hands of another, would be extremely upset and might well want to see the person killed, might want to go out and kill a person ourselves. I hope I wouldn't say that, but certainly, you know, that would be an urge that virtually anybody would have, I think. but as a society, we're better than that. As a society, we shouldn't lock people up, run them helpless, and then kill them. But the other thing I have to say to that argument is that if if prosecutors are saying we really spend a lot of time getting the worst of the worst, that's just false. The If you look at the population of death row, not only in California, but elsewhere, there are just random people there who were involved in a felony murder, for instance, and of course, now with the new proposition, there may be some review of some of those cases. But you have felony murder cases with a single death. Any death is terrible and tragic. There's no question about it. But, you know, as opposed to getting the worst of the worst, you know, where you talk about maybe a serial killer who's just, you know, uh, can't be deterred and says things that sound, you know, evil or whatever you want to say about them. You know, we're not just getting those people. And we're, there's such a disparity between who gets the death penalty and who doesn't get the death penalty in death penalty jurisdictions. And understand that that isn't just states. Within California, we have death penalty jurisdictions and non-death penalty jurisdictions. Santa Barbara did not have a death penalty case for years because the DA said she wasn't going to do it. And at the last minute here... Uh, few months ago, she uh, declared that she was asking death in a in a case here in Santa Barbara. But for years, we didn't have a death case. All my, even though I do a lot of death penalty work, it's all from outside of Santa Barbara, in recent years anyway. Other places, many counties in Santa Barbara do not have the death penalty. They just, their DAs, their boards of supervisors just say, we're not going to spend the time and the money to do this. It doesn't make sense, or it's just morally wrong. Obviously, San Francisco is the place that uh, historically now has not had the death penalty for a long time. And yet, if you're in Riverside and you're of color, uh, you're very likely to get the death penalty if you're charged with murder. If you're in uh, L.A., very high rate. Uh, Riverside was, at, a couple of years ago, had the highest death penalty rate, uh, the rate of actually imposing the death penalty at the trial level of any county in the United States. And so... None of that is fair. There's there's no fairness. There's no ability to to sit there and say we're getting the worst of the worst uh, because it's just it's empirically not true. And I would say, if I may, just to finish that point, is that you know I don't I don't want to understate how tragic it is for somebody to be murdered. You know, particularly somebody who's absolutely innocent, had nothing to do with anything, and just gets randomly murdered. I mean, it's awful. It's going to be awful for the family. And that's that's a fact. Not everybody gets the death penalty. Sister Prejean, uh, you know, who wrote the, the De- Dead Man Walking, had a, a group for people who lost family members to murder. And she also was working with these death row inmates. And she went to her to her uh, group in Louisiana, and she said in New Orleans, in the parish there, and she said. Uh, you know, I've got to tell you, you know, I'm working with these other people, and I wrote a book that's going to be coming out, you know, so I, I better tell you about it, right? Uh, I want to know how you feel about me doing that and how you feel about the death penalty. And she said, it's a poor parish. She said, 
most of the people there were of color, were African-American. And she said, uh, they said, we don't care about the death penalty. Uh, we don't want the death penalty. Nobody's even talking to us about our cases. Most of them aren't even solved. The government isn't paying any attention to, to our cases. Whereas, and, and the statistics prove this out time and time again, in California and everywhere else, that the race of the victim is one of the most uh, significant factors in determining whether or not somebody gets the death penalty. And so the, quote, sympathetic white victim is going to result in the death penalty for whoever committed the homicide, whereas a black victim, the person black or white, is a lot less likely to get the death penalty. And in most places, a, a white defendant and a black victim it's, may not even be a, considered a special circumstances case. So all those factors work into it. So we're not getting the worst of the worst. And my last point on this is there's no closure. We hear uh, DAs talk about, well, we need closure for the victim. That is a DA's word. Victims don't get closure for any of this. And Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation is a group of just what it sounds like, families of murder victims. And they are very clear and very strong in opposing the death penalty because they say it continues to drag cases out. You never get closure. If somebody is executed, there's no closure. There's sort of a sick feeling that now somebody else has died and another family is, is traumatized, even if they think the person who, who was executed deserved it. Uh, there's just no closure. So all in all, it's a, it's a system that doesn't achieve the ends that anybody wants to think it might. Okay, just a couple of last ones for you. You know, going back to sort of how the situation will go forward on the ground, you say you're still currently working on a capital defense case. Do you think that uh, at the trial court level uh, in particular that prosecutions and defense cases will still just sort of be unaffected by this moratorium? Do you think the prosecutors will be less likely to seek special circumstance cases if they know, you know, juries have seen the governor say there's not going to be a death penalty? Well, how do you think it will affect the cases on the ground? That's a good question. And one of the problems that we have is that because in California there hasn't been an execution for a long time, jurors often don't have the sense that they are really doing anything when they say death. And there's some, a lot of studies on that that uh, – Unfortunately, though I see it as a good thing there hasn't been an execution, jurors look at it and go, well, you know, I'm not really imposing death. This is never going to happen. The fact that Governor Newsom has done this, which is an admirable thing, and I absolutely support it, but nevertheless, in our upcoming jury trial, one of the things we're going to have to worry about is jurors who are going to say, well, you know, I can, the governor says there's no death penalty. I can vote for death. And then years from now, when the case is resolved, if the person was convicted, sentenced to death, yours would not actually be put to death. And these jurors would have not felt that they had really made that decision. So so that it's an issue that cuts both ways. I can say, though, that prosecutors seem to be just moving full speed ahead. The bargaining unit for the Los Angeles District Attorneys Association, the bargaining unit, actually came out with a statement, I'm sure you have it, uh, where they were you know, opposing Newsom's order which made me wonder, why is the bargaining, I mean, is this a financial issue? It probably isn't with regard to the L.A. district attorneys, but it becomes one sometimes. The prisoners, prison guard association and others that promote the longest, hardest, worst punishment, you, you have to wonder, why are they doing that? But in this particular case, the actual DAs are going ahead and marching forward, as far as I can tell, and I'm in touch with people all around, all around the state, Nobody has said, hey, the DA just said, well, given the governor's order, we'll drop death. Now, it's not to say we're not going to try, and I certainly hope to have discussions, and I don't want to talk about any particular case, but you can imagine there's one that's coming up. Uh, I want to have discussions with the, with the prosecutors, continue to have discussions, and I have in the past in, in cases, including a couple of cases that are, we're dealing with the AG on uh, before the Supreme Court, and I've tried to talk them into you know, looking at the case, we may be making some progress, not so much because of Newsom's order, but because of some others on some issues like people that are so profoundly mentally ill that they can't appreciate why they're there so that they couldn't be executed ultimately. 
uh, we may be in a position where the Attorney General of California is willing to expedite that determination so you don't have to spend another 10 years fighting about something that won't be relevant. So there is some movement, but I don't see any yet with regard to Governor Newsom's particular uh, order. Uh, just last one, you know, we referenced the 1972 state Supreme Court case. At the outset, you're, of course, paying close attention to this issue then and, and are now. At that point, did it seem like, okay, now that's the end of it? We won't see another execution in the state? In fact, we have seen, I think, about 13 since then. Does it feel sort of like that now? Do you think that, that there will ever be another execution in California? Well, I certainly hope not. I can just say back in 72, I was uh, in law school, finishing up law school, and and, of course, it had been a de facto moratorium in the country since, I think it was 1967, was the last execution before that. But we were all, you know, having our rallies and meeting and worrying and talking about it. And when uh, the Anderson case, case came down in 72 and then followed by Furman, uh, I really thought it. I remember thinking at that time, from graduating from law school, I don't have to deal with the death penalty. Isn't this nice? This is really good. You felt really good. And it was very shortly thereafter that that, uh, you know, the other death states started reenacting death uh, statutes. And then he had a brief period of time where, well, that's not going to happen in California. You know, people are more enlightened. And now, sure enough, it uh, came back with a vengeance. So I don't know what's going to happen. I think maybe we've gotten beyond that and that there's so much factual data available as to all those things we talked about, the mental illness, the race, the poverty, the lack of good lawyers, the lack of a proper narrowing system, all those things are, are out there. Uh, I think there's, I think it's less likely that you're going to have, uh, you know, a group of people, you'll have the group of people, but will they get the big following that, that occurred in the, in the 70s and into the 80s and on? Uh, I don't think so. I think, I think, cause I really want to think this is the beginning of the end for the death penalty. We'll certainly find out. Uh, Robert Sanger, senior partner with Sanger, Swiesen, and Dunkel. Thanks very much for being on our show. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. The governor's office has not been alone in counteracting capital punishment this month. Last week, the state assembly introduced a proposed constitutional amendment that would abolish the death penalty in the state. Senator Bill Monning represents the Central Coast in the 17th Senate District and was a co-author of that proposed amendment. Senator Monning, welcome to the show, and tell me about ACA 12. Well, ACA 12 has been introduced by our Assembly colleague, Mark Levine, and it would, if passed by both houses of the legislature with a two-thirds vote in each house, would put on the California ballot a question to voters, simply stated whether or not to abolish to end imposition of the death penalty as a punishment in California. And so, of course, that, were that to, to culminate and then be approved by voters would obviously have the, the legal effect that the executive order from last week does not. After that order, everyone sentenced to death you know, could still have their sentence carried out, potentially. It's just the moratorium makes it so it wouldn't happen during governor's, the, the governor's tenure. So obviously you're seeking with ACA 12 to entirely abolish the penalty, right? That's correct. This would achieve a constitutional amendment, and it could only be undone again by a vote of the people. So it would be a more lasting, permanent, in essence, abolition of the death penalty in California. And why, in your view, should the death penalty in California be abolished? Well, to quote the words of Governor Newsom, uh, it's proven to be ineffective, irreversible, and immoral, and I would add also tremendously expensive to the taxpayers of California. Some folks have expressed some worry of the, I guess, the method that the governor advanced to try to undercut the imposition of this penalty in the state, saying that perhaps the move to stop its use should have come from one of the more democratic branches of the government, namely your body, the legislature. Do you have any thoughts as to whether or not a uh, move against the death penalty should have sort of come first from the state house as opposed to the, the executive branch? Well, I think it's a fair question, and it's one that many critics have certainly raised. But 
I believe it's soundly within the constitutional authority of the governor. We have three branches of government. He's exercising his authority as governor, and he's not the first governor to exercise such authority. It's been exercised by governors in other states who have imposed moratoria against imposition of the death penalty. And as he stated, as Governor Newsom stated, it boiled down to him being empowered to sign death warrants and an action he didn't believe he could morally uh, justify, that he could not personally enact, and therefore preemptively exercised his authority as governor to grant reprieves, not release for anyone on death row. It simply is a reprieve that suspends imposition of the death penalty. You know, uh, now the opportunity for voters to abolish the death penalty has been given to them twice in the last 10 years, and both opportunities have been turned down. The voters have expressed their uh, affirmation of this punishment, though by close votes. Why do you think that if um, ACA 12 is approved by two-thirds of both houses, that uh, this time might be different, that voters might abolish the penalty? Well, you're absolutely right in terms of the history of this question being put to voters in California. But we're an ever-changing society. We're a dynamic population. We have more young people coming of age and exercising their right to vote. Also, one of the shortcomings, in my view, of the ballot measure is the susceptibility to massive inordinate amounts of spending on one side or the other, misinformation, appealing to people's worst fears. And it's not, in my view, always the best place to have an informed public discourse. Okay. Uh, Well, Senator Bill Monning, representing the Central Coast, uh, thanks very much for being on our show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. You take care. And that's our show for March 22nd, 2018. Thanks again to all three of my guests, Todd Spitzer, Robert Sanger, and Senator Bill Monning. Also, thanks to my production staff here, Principal Nick Perez. Thank you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that for having listened, you are entitled to one California CLE credit. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com site where this podcast appears. Complete that, tender the corresponding very competitive fee, and one hour of credit can be yours. Also, don't forget to look for us on the podcast app and other streaming avenues. Search Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. You should be able to find us. Doing so helps us spread the word about the show. And also, if you leave a rating or review, lets us know what we can do better. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.